Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie Terry. Hey guys, we are broadcasting from jail. We stormed Area 51. We got caught. Yeah, I broke a leg. And they're letting us broadcast from inside the jail because they listened to one of our episodes and they really liked it. So all, yeah. all in all, I think we've got some new fans in the police officers. I mean, this is the structure that I said I've been needing since day one. Alyssa and I put a vlog out and I think we had like a 15 minute conversation about how I wanted to go to jail. And you said that they don't pay you to be in jail. And I was arguing with you that actually it is like it's like I'm being paid to be in jail because I just free room and board free room and board what more could you want in LA you wake up at the same time go to sleep at the same time if I'm not following the rules someone's gonna literally hurt me so it forces me to study and be good and be the best version of myself I want you guys to know that we this is literally the day after we got back so anybody that was watching our live stream on was that Saturday that we got that we live streamed yeah Saturday anyone that was watching our live stream with the BBC <laughs> this is literally the day after so we're pretty tired if my voice is scratchy i'm sorry i was just screaming all night yeah. with the aliens yeah if you don't know at all what we're talking about we'll just do like a quick recap so on thursday we drove to nevada um and we stayed in a hotel and at 3 a.m i believe it was we storm we went to the area 51 gates we actually had to get a ride with a stranger oh my god okay so basically <laughs> basically what happened was we left at thursday around maybe like 11 a.m and we had been looking at hotels and airbnbs and basically all the prices were jacked up for storm area 51 so we had to get a hotel two hours outside mm -hmm. of area 51 in tonopah yeah and so we stayed at the comfort in and so we got into Tonopah maybe at like 8 p.m. Yeah. was it and then we had to drive over to the little alien where the alien stock festival was in Rachel and it was on a, a road that's out in the middle of the country and there's no lights or anything so it's pretty dangerous because there's these giant fucking mat like rabbit things what do you want to call that it's the biggest fucking rabbit it was I've like ever a seen jack rabbit but like on steroids because they're in the middle of nowhere I've never seen a rabbit no that these big. fuckers it, it was like a cat coyote rabbit yeah these fuckers didn't hop they walked on four legs across the road and I'm freaking out because I'm not driving so anytime you're sitting in the passenger seat you're just like I want to be driving I want to be driving I'm like Alyssa I see the rabbit and she's like my number one priority is to get us there there's no way in hell I'm going to be swerving going 75 miles an hour to get around a rat or a rabbit it's not happening if I can break in time I will to let them cross but there's no fucking way I'm not going to swerve off the side of the road Go into a cactus, have flip you seen... the car, catch on fire. That's... We're all dead, and then we don't get to see the aliens. Okay, the past like ten seconds of what you were saying sounds tight as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I'm serious. That's some Fast and the Furious shit, right? Well, how did that turn out for Paul Walker? Not so good. Boy. Too soon? Too soon? I like Paul Walker, but <laughs> I know. Remember, you and I saw that movie with your parents. I know. I cried at I the know, end. You did. It was very touching. It was a very touching. Um, the last Fast and movie. the Furious. But anyways, we went on this road, <laughs> and then we got to. Um, the, the little alien which was having that alien stock festival and there was hardly anyone there so I, it was honestly when we first saw it, it was sad because there was like they had like literally like a hundred porta potties or something lined up next mm -hmm. to each other maybe it was 50 i don't know uh, just too it was much a lot too much they had a and stage then, set up vendors they had a stage they had vendors and there was just this big wide probably like a half football field space w with a bunch of like uh spotlights on it as if it was coachella or something but then there was just no one out there like and so it was kind of making me sad because i was like oh like the poor lady that put that on because the guy who organized the viral facebook i group, think his name Maddie, is maddie yeah, yeah he pulled out last minute and 
and did this whole speech about how this is going to be a humanitarian disaster. I can no longer put my name on this event. So she had to plan it all by herself. And it was absolutely not a humanitarian disaster. Well, he pulled out a week before. Oh, a week before? Yeah. He said that she didn't show him the permits for uh, for security. Well, clearly she had the permits because the event went on as planned. Yeah, the event went, that went on as planned. What I think happened is so he went and did something in downtown Vegas with uh, Bud Light. And in the official statement that he left, he was like, I'm not going to offer my likeness and I'm not going to sign autographs at that little alien. And they can't use any of like the alien stock, like graphic design or logo or whatever. That makes me like him way less than I mean, I guess I never liked him in the first place, but I thought it was like creative of him to come up with this event. And like, it's a funny meme. Right. But then now it's like, oh, you only want money. It's right. So clear. Exactly. Like it's you so fucked clear. over a small business owner in order to have a deal with Bud Light. In yeah. Vegas. And he's like, I'm going to be signing autographs. And I was like, all right, well, I, I don't want your autograph. Yeah, I want to yeah. I want to see the aliens. So uh, so the alien stock event was completely separate from what the Facebook event was telling us to do, which was show up at Area 51 at 3 a.m. and storm the gates because they couldn't stop us all. So if there was like 30,000 people that show up at these gates like and Naruto run, <laughs> <laughs> there's no way the law enforcement could stop them. Like that's like, uh, you know, a small troop. Right. Right. But it wasn't like that. It was like maybe like 70 people in total or something were there. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I think that's fair. Maybe like between 50 to 70 for sure. Yeah. Well, it, and we were at the back gate because there's two gates to get into Area 51. There's the front gate and the and then there's the back gate and they're 30 minutes apart. So it's like you have to pick one. You can't go in. It's impossible to find it because it was on a dirt road that Unmarked, wasn't labeled. Yeah. And so, like we said, we literally hitchhiked with a stranger. Oh, that's what where this story started off on. Yeah. So Natalia is much more adventurous than I am, especially when I'm tired. And I was really, really fucking tired. And we could not find the dirt road. We were like, go, there's no gas stations also, I want people to know. So you have, you really have to like plan out your mileage we really carefully. a very primitive map that someone on Reddit had posted <laughs> about where the entrance to Area 51 was. And uh, Alyssa hadn't slept in like 24 hours. Like n we couldn't figure it out. So I see this guy driving like an old school Bronco with a light bar on the top. He and an might American be listening right now. We gave him our card. Yeah. And he had an American flag like on the back of his car. <laughs> flowing not a sticker of american flag no. like a fucking pole Actual with an american, american flag. flag like <laughs> and i was like this guy knows how to a read a dog him. and the dog was huge and he had a blow-up mattress instead of a back seat yeah and i took one look at this guy and i was like this fucking guy knows how to get to the back gates of area 51 and then so, my perspective is i'm like this guy is going to murder and rape us in the desert uh, yeah but uh, the Alyssa wouldn't let anyone drive her car. So the only alternative was either go home or have a stranger drive us there. And I was like, OK, well, this is what we're doing. So I asked the guy, I was like, hey, can you read this map and just tell us where to go? And he takes the map and like figures it out in like four seconds. And he's like, OK, cool. Well, and then I'm like, can we <laughs> oh, just. Well, there was no cell service. Remember, that's oh, what we're forgetting to tell what, everyone. Okay, too. Yes. So there's no fucking cell service. Only people with Verizon. Verizon or hotspots. Yeah. Could use cell service because Verizon actually is a cool company and brought a broadcasting tower out there. I know. It made me want to switch to Verizon. What's, I know. What's up, AT&T? Yeah, AT&T sucks. Oh, we met up with Bruce and Autumn. Bruce was with his dad, which was super sweet. His dad had a hotspot, a Verizon hotspot. So they had service, but we didn't have service. But let's preface this. We weren't able to... 
like we could not communicate with them. So the way that we ran into them was literally we saw them across a field and just started sprinting, yeah, screaming, screaming at them. At them. And, and you couldn't see because it was so dark. Yeah. Autumn was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, yeah. who is this person? But OK, so back to the to James. OK, so, yeah. So we were thinking like, oh, this is just a redneck dude. He's taking us there. Well, it turns out he's a fucking TikTok star, guys. He yes. has like 50,000 followers on TikTok. <laughs> So and the his, first thing I said to him when I got in the car was, I need your first, middle, and last name. Mm-hmm. I need to know where you're from. If you try to rape or murder us, I want you to know that we have several knives, pepper spray, and mace on us right now, and which I will we, fucking kill you. Which we had neither. And then none. I felt really bad because he turned out to be nice. He turned out to be super nice. This is so <laughs> like Alyssa. Like, some guy's like, hey, like, I'll take you guys out to where you're trying to go for free. And Alyssa's like, if you try one thing, we'll fucking kill you. I know. I need to um, work on it. He take us. He took us out. <laughs> it was it was very nice, but it, he ended up being a literal TikTok star. His name is Sir underscore Spam a lot. Is it? Is that what it was? Yep. Oh, because uh, I looked him up afterwards, and he has videos of like him, like and like leaning over his refrigerator, like beating his meat. Like what? you just hear you just hear baloney like. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah. how he got famous. Yeah. Wow. Who knew we were in the he was car a, with? Well, he was a marine. Such an he was artist. A, he was an ex-marine, so he knew <laughs> he knew what to do too. And he was like, Alyssa's like, I just don't want to get shot. And he's like, Let me tell you, the military has what we call the four S's: show, shout, shout show, shove, shove oh, and then right. shoot. So you shout, shout like, show, don't shove, shoot. don't do what you're doing. And if they still keep coming, then you show them your weapon and if they still keep coming then you shove, shove them, them out of the way and then if they and then he said in his words if they don't follow any of those then you have then you just light them up yeah he's like you pump them full of lead and i was like so that made that freaked me out more i'm like well well now and he kept talking about how he had a gun and i was like we're in a car with someone that i don't know mm-hmm. and he has a ma- blow-up mattress for a back seat which like red flag number one yeah but he ended up being really nice. Sorry, James. If you're he, listening to this, I'm sorry I prejudged you based on your um, uh, blow up mattress in your backseat. Well, to be honest, I had a lot of uh, assumptions about James and they all turned out fucking true. I was like, this is <laughs> someone who was probably in the military who has a gun. You're right. You did guess that. Yeah. And I was like, the only thing that he shocked me on was that he had a TikTok. <laughs> That's the only thing. No way we could have guessed that. Mm-hmm. But while we were at uh, the back gate of Area 51, it was it was super chill. I was, was expecting like uh, people like military personnel to be yelling at us and telling us like you can't approach, like go away. But actually, they welcomed us. They so yeah. when you pull up about 20 meters away from the entrance, there was a little police barricade, and it was just two super nice police officers that were like, "Have fun, kids," which honestly kind of pissed me off. I was like, "Don't oh, patronize me." Oh, I thought it was so I'm gonna, sweet. I'm gonna. You know, it made me feel like oh, they're not scared of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, maybe they were, but they... I, here's my theory. Okay, you guys, as you know, this podcast, Natalia, if we have any new listeners because we passed out our business card at uh, can you Can you guys send those back? Those were expensive. Yeah. Well, how would you describe our podcast to a new listener? It is a, pod, a comedy podcast about ghosts, uh, aliens, and conspiracy theories that is aims on the th- side of uh, not being a skeptic. Right. Correct. Podcast. So at, at, at worst, we're neutral. At yeah. best, we're believers. Yeah. And we just present you guys all of the facts. Qu- in quotation and, marks. And information <laughs> and entertain the shit out of you. I regurgitate to you everything I read on Reddit and 4chan. 
and you tell me if you think it happened or not. Right. But basically my point is, so this is my conspiracy theory about the Area 51 guards and why they were so nice. They were paid actors. I don't keep, I keep, I'm like very excited. Yeah, I keep Ellis pounding the table. Speaking with her hands but like let pounding. me tell you why. They were so fucking hot. Yeah. Like there's no way you can't be hot and also be a cop. It's just not possible. Yeah. Well, I just feel like the cops in LA, like they just look defeated and these cops looked like they're having the time of their lives. Yeah, they were like spray tanned. They had like probably Super 15% white body fat. Like what cop has veneers? That's what I want to know because that's, that was a paid actor for sure. Super well groomed. And yeah, we did think that maybe they were paid actors because they were they were all really attractive and then they were all wearing like different outfits. And they, they didn't were so have a nice. uniform. Yeah, they didn't have a standardized uniform. They were so nice. And we asked them if they had training for this and they straight up all of them said no, that they didn't receive any training. So either they were lying to us or they're paid actors well yeah. for pr purposes like yeah. hey we don't want this to turn into something where our cops shoot some someone that's naruto running at them yeah so let's get these like paid actors to come stand guard and like sweet talk everyone yeah and they all had like one-liners you would ask them a question someone asked him they were like hey can you put the handcuffs on me and take a picture and the cop goes i will but once they come on they ain't coming off i, I mean know. he didn't say ain't but but you know <laughs> <laughs> they were just like really like sweet and like silly. I feel like they were playing around with everyone and they didn't even arrest anybody that we saw at least. No, we even saw a girl go under the gate to take a picture and they just gave her a warning. And when we asked them like what the deal was, they were like, we're not going to take her to jail. She's 19 and probably fucked up. Their words. They said 19 and fucked up. See what I mean? Paid actors. Yeah. PR moves. So we wanted to thank you guys, uh, our donors, for donating and making this trip possible. There are quite a few of you, and we're going to list you guys off. Now. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This was a once in a lifetime experience, and I, I'm just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that we got to go. So, really, thank you guys. Big thanks to Stephanie F, Kathleen G, Josh B, Phil G, Elise B, It's Red Rum, Kai K, Alana M, Kinsley R, Hannah Q, Fran A, Zach G, Jose O, Alex W, Eddie C, Cassidy H. Brooklyn W and Kenzie M. Patrick, initial response, Morgan W, Robert C, Nick F, Julio G, Jacob O, Sean S, Zachary W, Marinella D, Matan B, Gabby K, Cheyenne S, Christopher O, Brandon R, Hiren Y, and Omar M. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We literally would have not been able to go without you. Uh, gas alone was so expensive i we haven't gotten our receipts together yet to see if we have any money left um but if we do then we're gonna be putting it towards another future haunted trip yeah woo, woo, woo. so other than area 51 nat do you want to talk about what we did in tonopah so tonopah is this tiny silver mining town and uh I know what you're thinking, right? Like, where's the silver? Because that was what I was <laughs> that thinking. That was Natalia's the only priority. I got a, a fucking metal detector, okay? <laughs> I spent $150 She's not joking. We went, she detector. made us stop at Big Five on the way to Tonopah. And then I get over there, and I guess the the soil around there has so many minerals in it that it, like a detector won't even work anyways because it's just beeping all the time. Mm -hmm. There was so much shit that happened on this trip. The vlog is going to be great, so you guys need to watch it. But yes. it's almost like, I don't there's even so know. much to mention. Yeah. Maybe the last thing we can talk about, or we went dumpster diving, but let's not get into that because that's going to be on the vlog. You guys still need some some surprise stuff. We also went to a haunted hotel where a sex worker was murdered on the fifth floor in the 1800s. And then the other crazy thing that happened to us was on the drive back from Area 51 to Tonopah, 
Nat, do you want to explain what happened? I don't know how to explain this. We're driving back, and when you're driving in complete darkness and you can uh, you can't see anything, right? But every once in a while, there will be a hill in front of you or something. And if there's rarely a car passing you, you can see the headlights coming up over the hill. But it just looks like floating lights. Um, so you kind of get used to it. You're like, oh, floating lights or whatever coming up over the hill. Like this is something. Well. This one particular time, I think it was coming back from Area 51, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. it was around like 4 a.m. It was, yeah, 4 or 5 a.m. 4 or 5 a.m. I'm looking ahead and I see the two lights coming up over the hill and I'm just like watching it, like waiting for it to turn into a car. But then my perception starts getting messed up and I'm like, whoa, like it kind of looks like tunnel vision that you see in a movie where the camera is pulling back but zooming mm-hmm. in at the same time. Or it just felt like I was on LSD and the walls were breathing or something. I don't know. I was like... It was super disorienting. It was disorienting. And I go, whoa. And at the same moment, Alyssa goes, oh, I can't hear anything. Yeah. Like my right ear just started ringing super loud the second Natalia said, whoa. And then I felt super disoriented. And at this point, we hadn't even said anything to each other yet. Natalia just says, whoa. And then I go, oh, I can't hear out of my right ear. And I I like feel super weird. And Natalia goes, I feel super weird. Like I feel like I'm. this is like an optical illusion. Yeah, exactly. That's what I said. I was like, am I looking at an optical illusion? And then and then the lights disappeared. It never turned into a car. And did it? No, it never turned into a car. Well, it sounds like the alien. I think. I it think sounds like abducted. the men and the men in black worked on you, but it didn't work yeah. on me. <laughs> the very last thing we did is we got interviewed by the BBC. Yeah, <laughs> Alyssa posted a tweet of us at the back gates of Area Fifty One, and then a uh, a journalist from the BBC contacted her, DM'd her, and he was like, "Hey, can we call you guys to talk to you about uh, your experience at Area Fifty One?" Alyssa's like, "Sure." The guy calls us and asks us some questions. And then he decided that we were worthy of an interview. Mm -hmm. So he said, "Okay, here's what I need you guys to do. I need you to pull over on the side of the road in about 20 minutes because we were driving back at this point. In about 20 minutes, we're going to give you a call. You're going to be live on air and you're (laughs) going to be on BBC radio and you're going to be on a show where you're talking to a professor (laughs) and And the presenter and the presenter. And so we're waiting, waiting, waiting. And so if any of you caught the live stream, that's what we were doing. And finally, the call comes through. We put Natalia on the line and she talked um, to <laughs> you were basically debating a professor of like data science. They this said was in, this was honestly OK. So this was insane because they when they called us to screen us for it, they were just like, tell us about your experience at Area 51. And like, do you believe in aliens? And it was like very laid back, like, oh, cool. Do you guys want to be on the show? We were like, yeah, we went to Area 51, and, you know. And then when they when they actually called us to be on the show, it was super professional. This professor was really well spoken. She was using all kinds of like scientific words. And she definitely had this like pre-written out. And then we are three people in a road trip and a car with a phone on speaker. And Alyssa's like, like whispering things into my <laughs> ear to say. And Amy's like whispering words to say. Oh, yeah. We brought our friend Amy. She was our camera woman yeah but we stumped this these people i said yeah. that the area of the alien stock <laughs> event was funded by the u.s government <laughs> and literally the professor was just quite like dead air for like five the presenter six yeah the presenter and the professor were just quiet for yeah, just a dead good air. moment well we'll put the i guess are we gonna put the audio yeah in we can put some of the audio into this episode you guys seem to like the longer episodes so i'll we can uh, edit that in bbc radio five live available on the bbc sounds app with Stephen nolan here's an interesting story that Facebook group Storm Area 51, they can't stop us all, attracted an online following of 2 million with a very simple idea. 
gather at the famous site on the 20th of September and storm the facility. What started out as a joke by the creator seemed to spiral out of control. But for those who are hoping for some big event, only around 100 people turned up. But why do some people find conspiracy theories so appealing? Professor, excuse me, Professor Liberty Viter, Professor, I've no idea if I've pronounced that right or not, uh, Professor in the Practice of Data Science at Washington University with us. Good evening to you. Hello. Let me get your, let me get your name right, first of all. How do I pronounce that properly, Professor? Ah, Liberty is perfect. We'll just go with that. That's an easy one. All right. Um, So, why are conspiracy theories so appealing, Liberty? Conspiracy theories have been around forever. I mean, we can go back in America to the Salem witch trials where people were murdered because of conspiracy theories. In general, they are about whoever is in power um, and being usurped. So something that those in power are trying to keep from those not in power. And I'll come back to you in just a moment because Jeremy Corbell is also with us tonight, a documentary filmmaker uh, who made a film about UFOs in Area 51. And we'll talk to Jeremy in a second. Nat Strawn is an LA-based podcaster who hosts the Let's Get Haunted podcast, focuses on conspiracy theories, aliens and ghosts. She attended uh, the Storm Area 51 event. Hello, Nat. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Um, why do you think this was such a, a, an event. What, why do you think there's so much fascination around this type of stuff now? Well, um, I do believe that the human race would be a very narcissistic and egocentric species to believe that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. Um, and I do believe that the U.S. military uh, has a lot of, you know, reverse-engineered space technology that they're withholding from the public that can be found at Area 51, which is why there's so much secrecy surrounding the base. I do think that the alien stock event and uh, drama surrounding planning the event and affiliated and non-affiliated parties that were alien-themed were a cover-up funded by the U.S. government to discredit believers and make people who look, uh, who believe in UFOs look less professional and perhaps less knowledgeable so I, I think that the original Facebook event for this was both a way to get people excited, uh, but also in some ways discredit believers. Do you agree, Liberty? I mean, Nat, I, I completely agree with you on one point, that the, the the human race would be quite arrogant to think that there is not some sort of living living life somewhere out there in the you know billions of opportunities of societies that could exist in the stars. And I think most... Um, uh, you know, a lot of people would agree with that, that there is life uh, not on, that, that's not on our own planet. Uh, the cover-up aspect of it is, is, is way less believable to me. Um, there have been many things that the U.S. government has tried to cover up over time, and they've all been exposed. I mean, uh, alcohol poisoning during Prohibition, the Tuskegee experiments, these things always tend to come out. And to, to assume that something as big as aliens, which is so fun to talk about and so exciting, wouldn't have come out at some point, I think is really uh, not possible. Are you dealing with oh. that now? Um, I, I do agree. I do agree with that sentiment, and I'm glad you brought up some of those previous events. However, I'd like to bring up the fact that recently there was footage released by the U.S. government of UFOs being identified by U.S. military personnel who were flying uh, in, for the Navy and 
the Air Force, and those videos were released uh, by a whistleblower. So if you look at the videos, it's clearly an unidentified flying object that looks nothing like any of the space technology that we have today. And also the people who are filming this, the pilots, they are, they are, uh, they're shocked. They're exclaiming their shock and they're like, what is that? And they sound very confused. And these are people who are professionals who have been trained by the U.S. government and the military to respond to events. And so if they're shocked, then I'm assuming they're seeing something that they don't know what it is. It's, they're unsure of how to proceed. And if a whistleblower released that, why would someone who's uh, high on salary by the U.S. government, who has such a respectable job, uh, risk making themselves look less professional? Because it could be a piece of kit. It could be a piece of technology that, that this country or indeed the United States are not aware of. And, and to follow on with that, Nat, I think, uh, you know, I, I've seen those videos, to be honest. I couldn't figure out what on earth I was looking at, but I, I did see those. The problem is, is that pretty much all UFO videos have been explained over time. You know, it's, it, this just got released very recently. And I think actually almost all UFO videos that have been, quote unquote, released by a whistleblower who have come from U.S. government videos have all been explained by uh, different phenomenon over time. Well, I think that it would be uh, very, you know, it wouldn't be a good move for the U.S. government not to cover up and not to explain what the UFOs are that we're seeing. And uh, also the Roswell incident, we have people who were actually there who, uh, or their, their her grandfather was actually working on site, who says it was not a uh, balloon, a weather balloon. And there's a lot of uh, discrepancies and controversial information about that incident. But I do believe that the government is hiding something about all of these events. And if they are hiding something, what are they hiding? What type of, of life, when you talk about the, the, the possibility of, of life elsewhere, or on some other planet elsewhere, what do you believe exists elsewhere? Do, do you think a species similar to human beings exists elsewhere or not? Do you think it is a superior species? What is your belief? I believe that any any life that can find a way to leave its own uh, planet and get to our planet, perhaps leaving their own solar system by whatever technology they have, must be more intelligent than the human race because they are they can get to us, but we can't get to them. We have been yet to able to send humans outside of our solar system or outside of our universe. And the technology that we do have, you know, it's not fit for humans yet. We're working on it. But I'm assuming that any alien life that is able to get to our planet must be far superior in their technology and their society and their culture. Liberty, what do you think? I, I do not believe that aliens have landed, you know, on, on Earth. I, I think that there is absolutely life. I, I think it would be very arrogant, just as not as you said, to believe that we are the only things in this in this universe. However, I I just you know, conspiracy theories have been around since the beginning of time, and some of them are really fun, including this alien idea. And we've been popularized by movies, and they're they're really exciting and really interesting. 
But over and over again, and we've seen it uh, over and over again, that these these types of conspiracy theories simply aren't true. The problem is, is that there's no way to prove that they're not. Yeah, but my question so more, Liberty, of- is you, I think I think you also said tonight that you'd be surprised if if there wasn't life on another planet. I'm just intrigued for, for, for someone who is a professor and practice of data science at Washington University, whether you believe that it is likely or not that there is a superior species to us. That's a very interesting question. I have absolutely no idea. I, I think that would be the, fair the fairest thing to say. And I mean, being being superior or not, what does that mean? Does superior mean that they, they've been capable of coming to us? Well, I don't think anyone has. So superiority is a, is a real question. There is, I, I, I do believe that there is some form of life. What that life is, uh, I have no idea. Okay. Well, listen, uh, it's been lovely talking to you both tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Liberty and Nat, thank you. Here's the number tonight, 0885-909-693. 0885-909-693. But I want to go back to something you said, Natalia, that's a perfect segue into my story today. You said that the men in black must have wiped my mind, but not yours, because yeah. you saw the car. Well, I have some questions for you. Oh. Okay. So in honor of us surviving the Storm Area 51 event, I'd like to tell you some UFO stories. But first, I have a few questions for you. Oh, God. Natalia, do you think the government likes or dislikes it when we talk about aliens? Or are they indifferent? What is your opinion? Do you think that they like it? Do you think they want to shut us up? Do you think that it's a distraction? I think that it goes both ways. So in some ways, when people start talking about aliens, it kind of makes them look crazy and and discredits them, like we told the BBC. Right. So anything that it makes you look like a quack. So anything that you're saying... Uh, is going to be filtered through the lens of, oh, this person is outrageous, right? Right. And it kind of distracts you from whatever the government actually is hiding. But I also think that the government doesn't want us talking about aliens because anytime that you present an idea, a radical idea about the government or any like about whoever's in power, it's okay as long as you don't have a following or you don't have any power behind you. So now that we're starting to get some more traction, I feel like you become, you almost start looking like an enemy of the state if you have an idea that goes like discredits the whoever's in power. So basically you think that the government either tries to shut people up when they get too close to something and or the government also tries to discredit people and make them look crazy when they're too close to something, right? Like maybe it could be both of those things. Like I think in the case of Bob Lazar, who we talked about, went into Area 51 and Mm -hmm. he was just that random dude and says that he saw the spacecraft. I think that they let him talk because he kind of looks crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, he put a a rocket ship on the back of his bike so (laughs) to get pussy. So, (laughs) and honestly, Bob, I think it probably worked for you. So Um, you came out on top. I'm, I'm, I'm down. So I have another question for you. What could the government do to you? Like we have this podcast. We talk about conspiracy theories, aliens, ghosts, cryptids. Is there anything that the government could say to you if we got too close to something that would make you stop doing this podcast or stop spreading the word about conspiracies? If they threatened my family or friends, there's nothing they could do to me. Right. I don't care. Like, send me to jail. I'm going to thrive there, like I said. Send me to the bottom of a ocean, like a titan in an underground secret <laughs> prison, and I'm probably going to have, like, some real good ideas and be creative down there. Yeah, send me to Hollow Earth with the Vril Society underneath <sighs> Antarctica, and I will thrive. Exactly. But okay. I know my friends and families are not down for that type of lifestyle. They just want to go to work and have children and, you know 
like update and build their houses on the side, like maybe get a new closet. I don't know, but they're not down to go do that. So you're saying if they threatened you with bodily harm, you would keep talking? Well, I didn't think about bodily harm. I was only thinking about mental harm. I would be, it would really upset me if they said something like, oh, we're going to take away the ability for you to like walk or something like that. Then I think I would shut up. Okay. All right. Well, what I'm going to do today, Natalia, is I'm going to tell you about some instances where the government may have been trying to intimidate people into not talking about something. Now, what is that something? UFOs. Let's start with the first two UFO sightings ever recorded in the U.S., both of which took place in 1947 prior to the Roswell incident. Mm. Okay. Kenneth Albert Arnold was born on March 29th, 1915, and died at age 68 on January 16th, 1984. He was an American aviator and businessman best known for making what is generally considered the first widely reported modern unidentified flying object sighting in the United States. After claiming to have seen nine unusual objects flying in tandem near Mount Rainier, Washington, on June 24, 1947, Arnold began Great Western Fire Control Supply in Boise, Idaho, in 1940, a company that sold and installed fire suppression systems, a job that took him around the Pacific Northwest. Arnold was regarded as a skilled and experienced pilot with over 9,000 total flying hours, almost half of which were devoted to search and rescue Mercy Flyer efforts. So this is a guy who has a ton of it. Like, he's very credible, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he is a business owner. Mm -hmm. He um, puts out fires. He has a pilot's license. He has over 9,000 hours of flying experience. And that experience is primarily in search and rescue. So he is trained in looking at things on the ground, looking at things in the sky and trying to find lost people, like Mm -hmm. little dots of color, picking those out, finding those people and saving them. Mm -hmm. Okay. On June 24th, 1947, while flying near Mount Rainier in Washington state, Arnold claimed to have seen nine unusual objects flying in the skies. Kenneth claimed that around 2.15 p.m. on June 24, 1947, he took off in his small plane to fly to Yakima, which is a city in Washington state. He said that when flying this route, he often liked to circle near Mount Rainier for a few hours at a time in hopes of finding a lost marine ship that had crashed in the area sometime before and never been found. So this is like this guy, not only does he get paid to do search and rescue, Mm -hmm. but if he's on his way somewhere and there's someone who might need rescuing, he's going to circle that area and try to find a hero. Right. Like this guy's just straight up a good guy. Yeah. I hope he didn't do anything bad because I didn't look into him that much. But (laughs) so far, the information that I have seen. This guy is like an upstanding citizen. Okay. While searching the area, he did not find the lost marine ship, but he did notice something flying in the sky next to him. So I'd like to play for you an interview that Kenneth did the day after the sighting on June 25th, 1947 with radio host Bill Burkett. Newscaster in every newspaper across the nation has made headlines out of it. And this afternoon, we are honored indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move up here to the microphone just a little closer, uh, we'll ask you uh, to just tell in your own fashion, as you told us last night in your hotel room and again this morning, uh, what you were doing there and how this entire thing started. Go ahead, Kenneth. Well, at about uh, 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima, and of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located at about, or <coughs> its elevation is about 10,000 foot, and I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons and was dragging it for any types of objects that might prove to be the marine ship. 
uh, and as I come out uh, of the canyon there, it was about 15 minutes, I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,200 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I, uh, at first, uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that, that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, uh, I, uh, thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day, and, uh, I didn't know where their destination was, but, uh, due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by, I just thought I'd see just how fast they were going, since among pilots we argue about speed so much. And, uh, uh they seemed to flip and flash in the sun just like a mirror. And, uh, in fact, I happened to be at an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these, uh, peculiar-looking things in such a way that it, it almost blinded you when you, when you looked at, at them through your plexiglass windshield. Well, uh, I, uh, it was about one minute to three when, uh, I, st- I started clocking them on my, uh, my sweet second-hand clock, and, uh, as I kept looking at them, I kept looking for their tails. They didn't have any tails. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I, something's wrong with my eyes, and I turned the, the plane around and opens the window and looks out the window, and sure enough, I couldn't find any tails on them. And uh, the whole observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes, and I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate, that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. Now, I thought, well, uh, that maybe they're jet planes with just the, pa- the tails painted green or brown or something, and didn't think too, too much of it, but kept on watching them. Uh, they didn't fly in a conventional formation that's taught in our army. They, uh, they seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintops. And uh, I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances, oh, probably a hundred feet. But I could see them against uh, the snow, of course, on Mount Rainier, and against the snow on Mount Adams as they were flashing, and uh, against a high ridge that happened to lay in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams. But uh, when I observed the tail end of the last one passing Mount Adams, and I was at an angle uh, near Mount Rainier from it, but uh, I looked at my watch and it showed one minute and 42 seconds. Well, uh, I still thought, well, that's pretty fast, and I didn't stop to think what the distance was between the two mountains. Well, I landed at Yakima, Washington, and uh, Al Baxter was there to greet me, and he saw up here, and uh, <laughs> he told me, I guess I better change my brand, <laughs> uh, but he, he kind of gave me a mysterious sort of a look that maybe I had seen something he didn't know, and, well, I just kind of forgot it then until I got down at Pendleton, and I... I began looking at my map and taking measurements on it. And the best calculation I could figure out, now even in spite of error, would be around 1,200 miles an hour because making the distance from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams in, we'll say, approximately two minutes, it's almost, uh, well, it, it'd be around 25 miles per minute. Now, allowing for error, we can give them three minutes or four minutes to make it, and uh, they're still going more than, than 800 miles an hour, and to my knowledge, there isn't anything that I read about outside of some of the German rockets that would go that fast. These were flying in more or less a level, uh, constant altitude. They weren't going up and they weren't going down. 
they were just simply flying straight and level, and I, uh, <laughs> I laughed and I told the pilot to tell them, I said, they sure must have had a tailwind, <laughs> but it didn't seem to help me much. But to the best of my knowledge and the best of my description, uh, that is what I actually saw, and uh, like I told the Associated Press, I'll, uh, I'd be glad to <laughs> confirm it with my hands on a Bible, because I did see it, and whether it has anything to do with our army or our intelligence or whether it has to do with some foreign country, I don't know. But I did see it, and I did clock it, and I just happened to be in a beautiful position to do it, and uh, it's just as much a mystery to me as it is to everyone else who's been calling me the last 24 hours wondering what it was. Well, Kenneth, <clears throat> thank you very much. I know that uh, you've certainly been busy the last 24 hours because I've spent some of the time with you myself, and I know that the press associations, both Associated Press and our press, the United Press, has been uh, right after you every minute. Uh, the Associated and United Press all over the nation have been after this story. It's been on every newscast over the air and in every newspaper I know of. The uh, uh, United Press in Portland has made ter several telephone calls here to Pendleton to me and to you this morning. And uh, from New York, I understand they're after this story. And we may have an answer for it before night, because if it is some new type of Army or Navy uh, secret missile, there will probably be a story come out on it from the Army or Navy asking, uh, saying that it is a new secret uh, plane, and that will be all there is to it, and they will hush up the story, or perhaps that uh, we will finally get a definite answer to it. I understand the United Press is checking on it out of New York now with the Army and also with the Navy, and we hope to have some uh, concrete answer before nightfall. Uh, we certainly want to thank you, Kenneth, for coming into our studio. Uh, we feel very pleased that this news, which is making nationwide news across the country, uh, we are able to give our listeners over KWRC a first-hand report direct from you of what you saw. And we urge our listeners to keep tuned to this station because any time this afternoon or this evening and we get something on it on our United Press teletype, which is in direct uh, communications with New York, Chicago, Portland, in fact, every United Press viewer across the nation, why we'll have it on the air. So this is a guy who, for all intents and purposes, I mean, you just heard him speak. He doesn't sound crazy, right? Like this sounds like a guy who has a normal job in society, is a contributing member of society. In fact, he seems to do quite a bit of free charity work. His entire life's passion is saving people, whether mm -hmm. that be in a fire or whether that be someone stranded on a mountain. He's voluntarily going to look for this crashed marine vehicle right. um, to see if he can save anybody mm -hmm. that they haven't been able to find. And then he sees this formation of six, and he describes them as a dinner plate cut in half right. with a convex triangle. So basically take the tail off of a plane. And, and it has like, it's a triangle cut into it. Yeah, it's like a boomerang almost. Yes, correct. Yes, totally, uh -huh. like a boomerang. And um, he also says that it's reflective and almost disappears when you're looking at it, like very stealth technology. Exactly. So okay. he's saying that it's like shimmery like a mirror. And in other interviews he gives, he even says that it seems like it was fading in and out. Mm -hmm. And um, that sounds, that actually looks exactly like the UFO uh, whistleblower tapes that were recently released. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm, when you're watching those. And so you think he sounds credible, right? I think he's, I think he sounds like he is telling the truth like he's giving his experience as uh as closely to the truth as he can right he's he's never seen anything like this before so yeah, he's, he's just not describing really, it the way he knows how. yeah he's not really making any assumptions he never once says aliens he never once says anything like that he just says i'm not sure what this is totally right when he says that it was going what he figures was a thousand miles an hour 1200 1200 miles an hour i looked up what uh the average plane speeds are and commercial aircraft go around 575 miles an hour to 740 miles an hour and the fastest fighter aircraft 
today is the MIG-25 with the speeds topping at Mach 3.2, which is 2,450 miles per hour. Right. So we're talking about some sort of craft that he's seeing in 1947 that's going 1,200 miles per hour right. and possibly disappearing and reappearing. Right. So it's and unlike anything them. that we've seen before. Yeah. And so like you said, Kenneth never comes out and says that it's a UFO or an extraterrestrial or anything of alien origin. He never says that once. But he is credited with helping the press coin the now famous term flying saucer mm. because in some of the interviews like we just heard he's saying oh it's sort of like a dinner plate right. like a saucer cut in half mm. and so he actually coined the term flying saucer mm. oh wow yeah so the U.S. Air Force formally listed the Arnold case as a mirage. This is one of many explanations that have been disputed by critics and researchers. There has never been an entirely persuasive, conventional explanation of the Arnold sighting. While many people were fascinated by Kenneth's account, even more people thought he was crazy after several negative articles calling him a liar or insane were published following his interview with Bill Burkett. Conspiracy theorists allege that the published articles were actually paid for by the U.S. Air Force in an effort to make people stop talking about UFOs and discredit Arnold. Well, I think it's really interesting that the military chose to even respond to this and say that it was a mirage because that makes it sound like it actually is a big deal, you know? Exactly. If yeah. he really was this person that's so far off from the truth and it's a mirage, why even respond to that? It's like if I call in and I'm like, hey, I saw something crazy, is the U.S. military government going to going to like at me and be like, oh, oh totally it not. was a, mis- a mirage. Yeah. They're just like not going to say anything. <laughs> right. They're going to be like, we have more important shit to do. Right. Exactly. It's like it would be like a, a military person calling us up because of something we covered on the podcast. Exactly. Like that would make absolutely no sense. <laughs> to be like, oh, I wanted to fact check you on something you said you know, in episode, episode about, three. Yeah. That episode about doppelgangers that you did. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know that definitely Queen Elizabeth never had a doppelganger. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like now I think she did. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So if this were an isolated incident, maybe we could just be like, okay, well, Kenneth never came out and said it was a UFO. Mm -hmm. Kenneth never came out and said it was anything alien related. He was just describing what he saw. Right. But actually, following this interview that Kenneth gave, two more people came forward. And they said that just three days before Kenneth saw these mysterious flying saucers in the sky, another incident took place near the same area that he had the encounter. In 1947, a common hazard in the waters of Puget Sound was the logs that floated on its surface. They escaped from jams waiting to be turned into lumber at nearby mills on the shore. Several men worked as an informal harbor patrol, snagging these logs and taking them to the mill for a fee. A man named Harold Dahl worked on one of these boats and his supervisor on shore was Fred Chrisman. Dahl reported that on June 21st, he was on his patrol boat with two men, his son and their dog. Around two in the afternoon, Dahl's boat approached the east shore of Maury Island. Maury Island is now attached to the Vashon Island by a causeway road and is about six miles west of Des Moines, Washington. Dahl looked in the sky and saw six objects floating about 2,000 feet above his ship. The objects were made of some reflective material, donut-shaped, and about 100 feet in diameter. The center holes were about 25 feet in diameter. Dahl said he also saw round portholes and what he thought was an observation window. Five of the craft circled over the six, which dropped slowly. It stopped and hovered about 500 feet above the water. Dahl put to shore because he was afraid the center aircraft was going to crash into his boat. Once ashore, Dahl took several pictures with his camera. The lower ship stayed in position for about five minutes while the others still circled above. One of the ships left the formation and moved down, touching the lower ships. The two kept contact for several minutes until Dahl said he heard a thud. 
Suddenly, thousands of pieces of what he thought were newspapers dropped from the inside of the center ship. Most of the debris landed in the bay, though some hit the beach. Dahl recovered a few pieces, finding it was a white, lightweight metal. Along with the white metal, the ship dropped about 20 tons of dark metal, which he said looked like lava rock. When the lava rock hit the water, it was so hot that steam erupted. They took cover after several pieces landed on his boat, damaging it. Some debris hit his son in the arm, breaking his arm, and another piece killed the family dog. No. After the rain of metal, the craft rose into the air and headed west out to sea together. Dahl went to his boat and tried to radio for help, but it didn't work. They sailed back toward the dock, dropping the dog over the side as a burial at sea. Dahl took his son to the hospital for treatment and then told his boss, Fred Chrisman, what had happened. Dahl gave Chrisman a camera that they had had on the ship, and when the prints were developed, they showed the strange airships. However, the negatives had spots on them, which he compared to film damage by exposure to radiation. Chrisman said he did not believe Dahl's story, but nevertheless, he went back to Maury Island, where he gathered some rock samples. He said that while he was gathering the rocks, one of the airships appeared overhead as if watching him. Dahl told investigators that the next morning, a man wearing a black suit visited him and suggested that they go to breakfast together. Dahl drove his car, following the stranger's new black Buick, to a restaurant. While they ate, the stranger asked no questions. Instead, he gave a detailed account of what had happened to Dahl the day before. The man in black warned Dahl that bad things would happen to him and his family if he told anyone about the incident. Dahl and Chrisman sent a package to publisher Ray Palmer in Chicago. Ray Palmer is the guy who later founded Fate magazine that we covered in a previous episode. It's like Mm -hmm. all about UFOs and aliens. The package contained a box of metal fragments and statements about the strange happenings on the 21st and 22nd of July. A few weeks later, Palmer contacted Kenneth Arnold, who had begun investigating UFOs. Arnold arrived in Tacoma in late July with airline pilot E.J. Smith. The two of them met with Dahl and Chrisman, examined Dahl's boat, and conducted interviews. Dahl and Chrisman did not produce the pictures, however. Dahl had also told Arnold that his son had disappeared. On the afternoon of July 31st, Captain Lee Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown of the U.S. Army Air Force flew up to Tacoma from Hamilton Field, California. In addition to being pilots, the two men were intelligence specialists. They met with Arnold, Smith, and Chrisman for several hours. One of the officers said he thought that there might have been something to the story, but that they had to leave around midnight and wouldn't be able to investigate further that day. They were in a hurry to be at Hamilton Field on August 1st, the day when the Air Force was to split from the Army. The two officers flew out of McCord Airfield around 2 o'clock in the morning on a B-25 bomber with a crew of two other men. About 20 minutes later, their airplane crashed near Centralia, Washington. The two enlisted men managed to parachute to safety, but Davidson and Brown, the two people investigating the UFO, were killed, making them the Air Force's first casualties ever in history. Dahl and Chrisman said that the Air Force officers took some of the strange metal on board. People thought that they heard anti-aircraft guns shoot the plane down intentionally. The local newspapers and FBI received phone calls stating that the plane was shot down to cover up the information that Brown and Davidson had found. Because of the loss of life, the Air Force broadened its investigation and the FBI launched an investigation of its own. The Air Force investigators determined that the crash was a terrible accident. One of the engines had caught fire and the men began to bail out. Before Brown and Davidson could jump out, a wing broke and struck the tail section, which also broke off. The plane went into a spin, trapping the men inside. 
Another Air Force investigator spoke with Dahl and Chrisman and visited their boat. He stated that the damage he saw did not match the damage that the two sailors described. There were no piles of metal on Maury Island, and the existing samples looked like slag from a metal smelter. His conclusion was that Dahl and Chrisman had faked the incident to gain publicity for a magazine article. The FBI warned Dahl and Chrisman that their hoax had not succeeded and that if they dropped the matter, the government would not prosecute the two men for fraud, which had resulted in the death of two officers. At first, Dahl and Chrisman went along. They made statements that the story was a fake and simply refused to give interviews on the matter. But a few years later, in January 1950, in an issue of Fate magazine, Chrisman stated that the incident had happened and Kenneth Arnold included Maury Island in his 1952 book, The Coming of the Saucers. Today, most people believe Chrisman and Dahl did not fake the incident. Other people believe that the U.S. government was behind a conspiracy that may have involved anything from UFOs to dumping nuclear waste in Puget Sound. They believe a shadow government agency sabotaged the B-25 bomber in order to eliminate the investigators and the evidence that they had on board. Some investigators recently visited the crash site, hoping to find some of the strange rocks to prove things one way or another, but so far, no answers have been found. So I'm going to recap that because I know yeah, that, that was yeah, really yeah. I was going to say recap yeah. it. Okay. Basically, what happens is these two guys are on a boat with their son and their dog. And back in the 40s, it was lucrative to hang out on the Puget Sound and wait for logs to float downriver, then gather these logs and take them to a nearby sawmill. And it's basically like recycling. It was like recycling. Like, you know, some people will go and they'll pick up bottles and cans, right? right? Okay. So this is the same thing, but with logs. Yeah. And so they were out there doing their thing, collecting logs, when all of a sudden they see these saucers, six saucers, and they're watching these saucers and they seem to be maneuvering in a way that at least for the time had never been seen before. Like they're crossing each other, they're going down they're even touching each other like Mm. tapping each other's wings and suddenly one of the aircrafts comes really really close to them and they think it's crashing and so they like very quickly start moving towards the shore when that aircraft starts dumping all of this debris Mm. some of the debris is like super hot some of it looks like metal some of it looks like lava some of it looks like rocks and some of this really hot debris falls in the ocean and all the steam is coming up and some of it hits their son in the arm Mm -hmm. and he breaks his arm and some of it also hits the dog and kills the dog Mm -hmm. and so they have to go to the hospital and they do have records proving that the son's arm was broken Mm -hmm. so there is that Uh, and then basically what happens is they report it because they're saying like, this is fucking nuts. Right. Mm -hmm. So they gather some evidence and they send it off to a magazine and then they keep some of the evidence and they give it to, um, the investigating authorities. And these two guys that are investigating think that the story is credible. Right. So they're looking at stuff and they're like, wow, this really checks out like the damage on this boat. There's some rocks on the shore, um, the hospital, the hospital. And they're like, you know what? We think that there's some merit to this. We're going to look into this. Mm -hmm. So, a couple days later, they are on a sh- um, they're on a plane mm-hmm. going to their home base when their plane gets shot out of the sky. And witnesses on the ground that have nothing to do with this incident at all, they don't even know what's going on, they say that they heard someone shoot down the plane. Well, the military says that there was nobody in that area, there were no enemy aircrafts in that area, uh, that it wouldn't make sense for it to be shot down, and that actually what had happened was an engine just failed. But how did everybody else manage to bail out in time with their parachutes, except for, coincidentally, these two guys that have the evidence on them? Right, and then someone is looking for the debris and they can't and the debris that they find is not accurate to what should have been there. Exactly. So then they so basically the public is outraged once they hear the story because Kenneth 
goes public about his It's like this UFO. Jeffrey Epstein thing. Exactly. <laughs> and these two guys go public about what happened yeah. to them. And so it kind of catches on and people are really interested. Like, wow, what was this? And nobody's saying it was aliens at this point, but people are scared. Like you said, we're in a wartime scenario. Yeah. People are thinking, is this some sort of is enemy Russia? aircraft? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. what is going on? Is this Germany? Is like, is Japan? Giving us, like, nuclear waste and the Puget Sound? Yes. And Killing the orcas? I'm pissed. Yeah, fuck that. Basically, they the FBI has no choice but to investigate because now there's this public outrage. Mm. So they come to investigate and they basically threaten the two men who were the ones selling the logs. And they say, if you don't shut up about this, we're absolutely going to put you in jail for fraud. And that can carry like a 20 year sentence because it resulted in the death of two airmen is what Mm. they're saying. And so they have to come out and do it, give a public statement, say, you know what? We made it all up. You're right. It was a hoax. Our bad. But then years later, they publish another article and they say, look, it wasn't a hoax. We were forced to say that because we were threatened. Now, something that I think is interesting about this story is this is the first time, first documented case of the men in black. Right. Because remember, after this incident happened, a man in black came and was took like, do him you to breakfast. Get breakfast. Yes. And was why did he go? I don't know. I think was the 1940s just like, oh, you can't turn somebody down. That's rude. Right. I think it was just like people were so much more trusting then. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the number of people that used to just hitchhike and not think twice about it. Right. It's well, yeah. you're probably, wow, this man's wearing a suit. He must, he must be a be businessman. Right. I'll go to. Yeah, let's go. Or maybe he's someone who's going to explain to me what I saw because this right. guy comes super professionally dressed and is like, hey, I want to take you out to breakfast. I want to talk about that thing that you mm-hmm. saw. They go out to breakfast and instead of asking questions, the guy in the black suit tells him, I know what you saw. This is what you saw. And he explains it word for word, Mm. like the exact same story. And then after that happens is when we have the two investigators coming out and then all of a sudden the plane is shot down and the FBI gets involved and they get threatened. And so this is like this is just basically the first time that we've ever heard about the men in black. Right. Okay. Now I want to fast forward to 1967. So we're out of the 40s. We're into the 60s. Okay. In Toledo, Ohio. 67. Is mm-hmm. that like the hippies? Like we're yeah. going a couple years away from Summer of Love, Woodstock, all of that? Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. Robert Richardson was just a regular man driving home from work late at night in July of 1967 in Toledo, Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was dark out, and when coming around a bend, Richardson immediately crashed into an object that he described as a low-flying, disc-shaped craft that was blocking the road. Immediately upon impact, the craft faded into thin air. Richardson was confused and got out of his car to search for the craft he had hit, but could find nothing. Richardson's car was dented but not destroyed, and he was able to drive himself to the police station to make an accident report. Two police officers accompanied Richardson to the scene and noted they could only find his own skid marks as evidence. So basically confirming there was no second car involved in this accident. Richardson continued searching after the officers left him and found a small lump of metal which might have come from the craft that he hit. Feeling like at best the police were ignoring him and at worst they didn't believe him, Richardson decided to reach out to APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, on the advice of a friend. APRO is basically this research group that aims to look at cases that are ignored by law enforcement because they may or may not involve like a UFO. Mm. Or some unexplained phenomena. So when the police say, okay, you're full of shit, like there's right. no or, crimes been committed. Or, and yeah. Or even if it is just top secret military, like craft or whatever. Exactly. So they're yeah. going to investigate anything that's like an unexplained craft. Okay. Okay. So he contacts APRO and he is, you know, explaining the situation to them. 
Three days later, at 11 p.m., two men in their 20s dressed in black suits, sunglasses, and black hats appeared at Richardson's home and questioned him for about 10 minutes. They did not identify themselves, and Richardson did not ask who they were. They were not unfriendly. They gave no warnings. All they did was ask him questions about the incident that had occurred to him. He noted that they left in a black 1953 Cadillac and wrote down their license plate number. When he ran the plate... The plate was found to have not even been issued yet. A week later, Richardson received a second visit from two different men who arrived in a current model Dodge. They also wore black suits and sunglasses and were dark complected. Although one spoke perfect English, the second one had a bit of an accent, and Richardson felt that there was something vaguely foreign about them. At first, they seemed to be trying to persuade him that he had not hit anything at all, but then they asked for the piece of metal. When he told them that he had already sent the metal out for analysis, they threatened him, if you want your wife to stay as pretty as she is, then you'd better get the medal back. Give it back right now. I will not be married to an ugly woman. The existence of the medal was known only to Richardson and his wife and to two senior members of APRO. Seemingly, the only way the strangers could have learned of its existence would be by either tapping his phone or the APRO's phone. There was no clear connection between the two pairs of visitors, but what both had in common was access to information that was not freely and publicly available. Richardson had never gone public about this story. He is unlike the other three guys that we talked about. He never did a radio interview. He never did a newspaper interview. All he did was make a police report because his car had run into something. The police came out, didn't find anything. And he felt like he was being ignored. And he was like, this is really fucking weird. Like, what did I see? So he contacts the APRO, but he never went public. So the fact that these four people knew about it, they could not have gotten the information from any other way. So Richardson was supposed to hear back from the lab that he had sent the metal samples to within a few weeks. But after two months had gone by and still no word from the lab, he decided to call them to inquire. Richardson was told that the lab had never received any samples from him and that they had no idea what he was talking about. Then they hung up on him. So he had sent in these samples to the lab, had mailed them snail yeah. mail, and they're saying, we never received they those. They just stole them. Yeah, we don't know. Or were they intercepted oh. by someone? Okay. So let's go to the next story. The next story comes just one year hold later. On, hold on, These men in black, they're in their 20s? Late 20s, yeah. Late 20s. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But we're going to keep talking about different how different people describe them and well, yeah well because that the one guy said that they the first set of people that came were like in their 20s whatever and then the second set he felt like might be foreign yes correct yeah because of the way that they were talking but he couldn't place their accent so he couldn't like maybe know. they had been trained to get rid of their accent speak with an english accent right so either they're trying to cover up an accent or they're from a place that's not easily recognizable what they're the aliens? accent is wait are you telling me that these men in black are aliens i'm not saying that they're not aliens hmm. so let me tell you one more story uh and then a couple more stories <laughs> Okay. Okay. The next story comes just one year later in 1968 in Jersey City. UFO researcher Jack Robinson lived in an apartment with his wife, Mary. The couple began to notice something strange going on when they would come home to find that their house seemed to have been searched or rummaged through, ransacked even, especially their files of the UFO phenomena that they were studying, although there was never any sign of forced entry or burglary. Shortly after this, Mary claimed that she began to notice a peculiar stranger dressed all in black and wearing sunglasses, lurking and loitering about the area of their apartment, who could sometimes be seen staring up at their window. This was all spooky to be sure, and the creeped-out couple told a friend of theirs, Tim Green, about what was happening. Mary said that he had an unsettling look on his face, kind of unemotional and zombie-like. 
Mary had mentioned this to two of her friends, Tim and Jim, and because the guy appeared three days in a row, they decided to drive over early one morning and see if they could find the man in black for themselves. Sure enough, there he was staring ahead with the black sunglasses, long black coat, and enigmatic stare. Absolutely not. I know. I would never. <laughs> fuck the fuck that. Whether yeah, or not that's a man in black. Yeah, fuck that. Okay, Jim allegedly came by one day when the enigmatic man was prowling about and managed to capture a photograph of him (gasps) before he sauntered off and was gone. Although it is inconclusive, to say the least, the resulting photograph is believed to be one of the first and clearest photos of one of the alleged men in black. You have to show me. You can't. I will not continue to hear this unless you show me this photo. Don't you even worry about it. Okay. Hold on. You want to describe that photo for our listeners and we'll upload it to the Instagram account? All right. I'm looking at a photo that's taken of a row of buildings. It looks like actually, where did you say this was? It looks like a city of some sort. It's Jersey City. Oh, Jersey City. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, there's like a bunch of brownstones or something. And then in the door, what do you call that? The stoop? It's like an archway. Yeah, Yeah. In the archway, there's a man wearing a black suit and a black hat looking ahead. And, and he, it's just he the looks, side. He looks like he maybe doesn't want to be seen. Yes, totally. Like he's, he's kind of like, right? yeah, he's kind of like hiding behind something uh, behind the doorway. He looks like when you're about to prank somebody and scare them. Yes, exactly. So he he doesn't want to be seen. He looks mysterious. He's dressed exactly how the couple described it. And this is the and the couple confirms that this is the same man that they had seen for three days in a row. And every day that they had come home, their house had been rummaged through, especially their UFO files. And some of their UFO files had even been stolen. I'm starting to believe that these men in black are actually aliens pretending to be people that like don't want to be found out. Well, because if it was the military, they're going to show you a badge, right? And they're not going to be staring at your house and be able to be caught. But if it's like weird aliens from another country, they're like, what do what do men wear there? They're like suits. (laughs) How how do we blend in? Oh, I know. A black overcoat, a black suit, a black hat, black sunglasses and talk with a weird accent. Right. And then they're like, oh, uh, they made they like fashioned themselves a skin suit to go over their weird alien. Yes, thing. So like literally like, in the movie Men in Black, where right. they get that farmer and cut him open and use his skin suit. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, because I feel like they're or they fashioned some sort of avatar that doesn't work that well, you know, so right. they're like, oh, like they look in the mirror and the eyes don't blink or something. They're like, well, let's just put Close some enough. sunglasses yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> Like, we know we ran out of funding to make the torso, so let's just stuff it with newspapers and put a black overcoat over him. It's just like three aliens with a hat on under a trench coat. Stacked one on top of each other. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So now I'm going to read you an article that comes from ufoevidence.org. Now, as we all know. Wow. Super credible. .org. How much more credible can you get? Okay. I'm going to read this to you. So this article is called The Sinister Men in Black. Uh, It was published in 1991. As UFO sightings increase, so does the harassment of witnesses by the sinister men in black. Albert Bender, director of the International Flying Saucer Bureau, an amateur organization based in Connecticut, USA, once claimed to have discovered the secret behind UFOs. But unfortunately, the rest of the world is still none the wiser, for Bender was prevented from passing on his discovery to the world by three sinister visitors, three men dressed in black known as the silencers. It had been Bender's intention to publish his findings in his own journal, Space Review. But before committing himself finally, he felt he ought to try his ideas out on a colleague. He therefore mailed his report. A few days later, the men came. Bender was lying down in his room, overtaken by a sudden spell of dizziness, when he noticed three shadowy figures enter his doorway. Gradually, they became clearer. 
all were dressed in black clothes. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Homburg style. The faces were not clearly discernible, for the hats partly hid and shaded them. Feelings of fear left me, so this is a quote from him. Feelings of fear left me. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs, and all of these were focused upon me. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pain above my eyes became almost unbearable. It was then that I sensed that they were conveying a message to me by telepathy. Bender's visitors confirmed that he had been right in his speculations as to the true nature of the UFOs. One of them was actually carrying Bender's report and provided additional information. This so terrified him that he was only too willing to go along with their demand that he closed down his organization, cease publication of his journal at once, and refrain from telling the truth to anyone on his honor as an American citizen. But did Bender really expect anyone to believe his story? His friends and colleagues were certainly baffled by it. One of them, Gray Barker, even published a sensational book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And Bender himself supplied an even stranger account in his Flying Saucers and the Three Men book some years later, in response to persistent demands for an explanation of what had occurred from his former colleagues. He told an extraordinary story involving extraterrestrial spaceships with bases in Antarctica that reads like the far-fetched contactee dream stuff, and it has even been suggested that the implausibility of Bender's story was specifically designed in order to throw serious UFO investigators off the track. Mm. However believable or not, Bender's original account of the visit of the three strangers is of crucial interest to UFO investigators, for the story has been paralleled by many similar accounts, frequently from people unlikely to have heard Bender and his experiences. UFO percipients and investigators are apparently also liable to be visited by men in black, or MIBs, and although most reports are from the United States, similar claims have come from Sweden, Italy, Britain, and Mexico. Like the UFO phenomenon itself, MIB spanned three decades and perhaps had precursors in earlier centuries. So I'm going to pause there for a second because we have talked about this before on the podcast where we said, is alien abduction a white person problem? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And there apparently it's not just a white person problem. Right. As it turns out, I found a story uh, from Mexico, mm -hmm. story from Africa. And a story from Brazil where the men in black visited people. Oh, good mm -hmm. job, Alyssa. Thank you. So now apparently it's a universal problem, which almost gives more credence to oh, the men in black. absolutely does. Yes. Okay. So next section, visitations. Like Bender's story, most later reports not only contain implausible details, but are also inherently illogical. In virtually every case, there seems on the face of it to be more reason to disbelieve than to believe. But this does not eliminate the mystery. It simply requires us to study it in a different light. For whether or not these things actually happened, the fact remains that they were reported. And why should so many people, independently and often reluctantly, report such strange and sinister visitations? What is more, why is it that their accounts are so similar, echoing and in turn helping to confirm a persistent pattern that, if nothing else, has become one of the most powerful folk myths of our time? The archetypal MIB report runs something like this. Shortly after a UFO sighting, the subject, he may be a witness, he may be an investigator on the case, receives a visit. Often it occurs so soon after the incident itself that no official report or media publication has taken place. In short, the visitors should not, by any normal channels, have gained access to the information they clearly possess. Names, addresses, details of the incident, as well as those involved. The victim is nearly always alone at the time of the visit, usually in his own home. The visitors, usually in two or three in number, arrive in a large black car. 
In America, it is most often a prestigious Cadillac, but seldom a recent model. Though old in date, however, it is likely to be immaculate in appearance and condition inside and out, even having that unmistakable new car smell. If the subject notes the registration number and checks it, it is invariably found to be a non-existent number. The visitors themselves are almost always men, only very rarely as one a woman. In appearance, they conform pretty closely to the stereotyped image of a CIA or Secret Service man. They wear dark suits, dark hats, dark ties, dark shoes and socks, but white shirts, and witnesses very often remark on their clean, immaculate turnout, all the clothes looking as though they were just purchased. The visitors' faces are frequently described as vaguely foreign, and slanted eyes have been specified in many accounts. If not dark-skinned, the men are likely to be either very heavily tanned or white and porcelain-like. Sometimes there are bizarre touches. In one case, for example, a man in black appeared to be wearing bright red lipstick. The men in black are generally unsmiling, expressionless, stiff, and awkward. Their general demeanor is formal, cold, sinister, even menacing, and there is no warmth or friendliness shown, even if no outright hostility either. Witnesses often hint that they feel their visitors were not human at all. Why is he wearing lipstick? So some people think... And we'll get into the theories more at the very end. And I'm going to ask you what you think after Uh you hear all of this. But some people think if this is aliens instead of humans that are visiting, could they be trying to imitate something but doing it incorrectly? Right. Yeah. Like Like they had a... You know, if we believe that these are aliens, then they're probably from some star system that's really far away. And so all the information that they had about us when they invented their men in black division might have been from the 50s. Yeah. So that's why those cars are all from the 50s. And that's why they dress that way. You know, the movie Men in Black. I mean, so they clearly studied this. I I never even occurred to me that this was like. A, thing. a real thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but they clearly studied this because you remember when the alien comes down and looks at that lingerie magazine and then yeah. morphs into that woman and right. she's walking around in lingerie in the street because she thinks that's normal. Uh-huh. And so perhaps they found someone who was wearing red lipstick, a man that was wearing red lipstick, and uh-huh. they just thought this is what humans look like. Or they just get a press kit that's like, this is human culture. And they're just looking at all these like Ava Gardner putting on lipstick and stuff. And then right. they're just like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to exactly. do that one. Yeah. Oh, here's a magazine with a woman wearing red lipstick. I'm sure men must wear red lipstick here, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, some men in black proffer evidence of identity. Indeed, they sometimes appear in U.S. Air Force or other uniforms. They may also produce identity cards. But since most people would not know a genuine CIA or other Secret Service identity card if they saw one, this, of course, proves nothing at all. If they give names, however, these are invariably found to be false. The interview is sometimes an interrogation, sometimes simply a warning. Either way, the visitors, even though they are asking questions, are clearly very well informed with access to restricted information. They speak with with perfect, sometimes too perfect, intonation and phrasing, and their language is apt to be reminiscent of the conventional villains of crime films. The sinister visits almost invariably conclude with a warning not to tell anybody about the incident, if the subject is a UFO percipient, or to abandon the investigation if he is an investigator. Violence is frequently threatened too, and the men in black depart as suddenly as they came. Okay, so I'm going to tell you another men in black encounter that someone had. One inclement evening in November 1961, Paul Miller and three companions were returning home to Minnow, North Dakota after a hunting trip when what they could only describe as a luminous silo landed in a nearby field. At first, they thought it was a plane crashing, but had to revise their opinion when the plane abruptly vanished. As the hunters drove off, the object reappeared and two humanoids emerged from it. Miller panicked and fired at one of the creatures, apparently wounding it. The other hunters immediately fled. 
On their way back to Minnow, all of them experienced a blackout and lost three hours of time. Terrified, they decided not to report the incident to anyone. Yet, the next morning, when Miller reported to work in an Air Force office, three men in black arrived to greet him. They said that they were government officials but showed no credentials and remarked unpleasantly that they hoped Miller was, quote, telling the truth about the UFO. How did they know about it? We have a report, they said vaguely. They seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything else, Miller said. They also asked questions about his experiences as if they had already known the answers. Miller did not dare tell this story to anyone for several years. Wait, but how did he remember it if he got they all lost three hours of time? So he doesn't remember it. He What he remembers is he saw a, this luminous silo land in a field. Then it disappears. Then they start driving off and suddenly it lands in front of them and these three humanoid creatures come out mm -hmm. and then they don't remember anything for and three hours. They just like land back down by their car in three hours and they oh, don't know where so they maybe were. Maybe they were abducted. Maybe. And or or were they, you know, flashed with the little memory eraser thing? Like, yeah. I don't know. But the point is, all of them were so freaked out and some of them were military people. And yeah. so they didn't want to lose their jobs and appear yeah. crazy. So they literally didn't tell anybody. But even so, the next day, men in black arrived to question him and they already knew the entire story. Well, that gives some credibility to this idea that the men in black are aliens because... Uh, they, the only way that they could know is if they were if, involved in the incident. Totally. If they were there. Right. Or if we believe that they're aliens. Right. I mean, I guess it could be like top secret military thing and then top secret military, whatever. Right. Maybe the three humanoids were actually, actually like military personnel yeah. and a top secret mission. Who knows? Okay, in September of 1976, Dr. Herbert Hopkins, a 58-year-old doctor and hypnotist, was acting as... Whoa, whoa, I know. Wait, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> I know, I just breezed over that. <laughs> yeah, he's a 58-year-old a doctor and hypnotist. So in the 70s, hypnotism was super popular as a uh -huh. form of therapy. Oh, So okay. he's essentially uh, a therapist, a licensed therapist and MD, and he uses hypnotism as one of his treatments. It's like you don't have polio. Yeah, as it turns out, you're not depressed. Like... <laughs> Wow. Thank you, Dr. Hopkins. <laughs> so he was acting as consultant on an alleged UFO teleportation case in Maine, USA. One evening when his wife and children had gone out, leaving him home alone, the telephone rang and a man identifying himself as vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization asked if he might visit Dr. Hopkins that evening to discuss certain details of the case. Dr. Hopkins agreed at the time it seemed the natural thing to do. He went to the back door to switch on the light so that his visitor would be able to find his way from the parking lot. But while he was there, he noticed the man was already climbing the porch steps. I saw no car, and even if he did have a car, he could not have possibly gotten to my house that quickly from any phone. Keep in mind, this is the 70s. Mm -hmm. Cell phones are not a thing. Right. So this man calls him and says, hey, I want to discuss this you know, UFO incident that you're working on. Yeah. Come And then as soon as Dr. Hopkins says, sure, fine, he opens, he goes to open the door and turn on the porch light. The man is already there. The man is already there. There's no car. There's no way he could have gotten there that quickly. There's no such thing as cell phones. Okay. Hop, um, at the time, Dr. Hopkins felt no particular surprise as he admitted his visitor. The man was dressed in a black suit with black hat, black tie, black shoes, and a white shirt. I thought... Why do they have to do the white shirt then? It's like... <laughs> it's like the Blues Brothers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fuck. I hate that. It's like the Blues Brothers or Michael Jackson. Okay. I know. It's like, stop. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Further that conspiracy theory. Michael Jackson was an alien. A man in black. 
Yeah. Yes. He wasn't a pedophile. He was an alien. And that's yes. And that's why he acted so weird with children, because he thought that that's just what you were supposed to do. Yeah. He was probing. Exactly. Too far. OK, too far. I thought he looks like an undertaker. Hopkins later said his clothes were immaculate, suit unwrinkled, trousers sharply creased. When he took off his hat, he revealed himself as completely hairless, not only bald, but without eyebrows or eyelashes. His skin was dead white. His lips bright red. In the course of their conversation. It's Voldemort. Right. <laughs> It's Voldemort or it's Michael Jackson is what we're learning here. In the course of their conversation, he happened to brush his lips with his gray suede gloves. And the doctor was astonished to see that his lips were smeared and that the gloves were stained with red lipstick. Oh, it's like he was just a silicone, like silicone. He was a silicone, like doll body right. that had just painted on stuff and he didn't exactly. think to like paint a porcelain on. doll right yes. didn't think to paint on the eyelashes or the, the eyebrows. eyebrows exactly it was only afterwards however that dr hopkins reflected further on the strangeness of his visitor's appearance and behavior particularly odd was the fact that his visitor stated that his host had two coins in his pocket it was indeed the case he then asked the doctor to put one of the coins in his hand and to watch the coin not himself as hopkins watched the coin seemed to go out of focus and then grow gradually vanished neither you nor anyone else on this plane of existence will ever see that coin ever again the man in black told him after talking a little longer on general is that a threat is that like oh i could make you disappear if i wanted to look here's the deal either this is the fucking weirdest magician i've ever heard of in my life that's just like knocking on random doors and doing coin tricks or this is like someone from another world right right because he's asked him to look at the coin the coin slowly changes colors then slowly gets fuzzier but everything around it is in perfect focus it gets fuzzier and fuzzier until it completely disappears mm. okay after talking a little while longer on general UFO topics, Dr. Hopkins suddenly noticed that the visitor's speech was slowing down as if a doll running out of batteries. The man then rose unsteadily to his feet and said very slowly, my energy is running low. I must go now. Goodbye. He walked falteringly to the door and descended the outside steps uncertainly, one at a time. Dr. Hopkins then saw a bright light shining in the driveway, bluish white, and a distinctly brighter than normal car lamp. At the time, however, he assumed it might be the stranger's car, although he never heard or saw any car. The man then vanished into the night. Okay. The fuck? Okay. You can't just say that. What do the you mean? Fuck? I know, but that's literally, that's what the story is. No, it's not. Well, there's more. <laughs> okay. Well, I have two modern stories for you. And I was talking to you in the coffee shop before we started shooting this. And I said that there's like a random celebrity cameo that I was researching this mm -hmm. article on Men in Black. And I was like, what the fuck? Okay. Have you ever heard of Dan Aykroyd? Yeah. Wait, <laughs> from the Coneheads? From yeah, SNL? from Coneheads, from SNL, from the Blues Brothers, yeah. from Ghostbusters. Okay, so I have some of the Crystal Skull vodka. Oh my God, Dan uh -huh. Aykroyd, come on our podcast. <laughs> okay, so for people who don't know, like we just said, he's a famous comedian, actor, producer, businessman, and he is perhaps most recognizable for his time on SNL and for his starring role in the movies Ghostbusters and the Blues Brothers. But did you also know that Dan Aykroyd is an outspoken believer in UFOs and aliens? Absolutely not. no. Absolutely not. I didn't know either. Aykroyd would have the first of his own many close encounters with UFOs in the mid-1980s in upstate New York when he claims that he woke up in the middle of the night in a panic and told his wife, they are calling me. I want to go outside. 
He claimed that he had the irresistible compulsion to go outside, which he credits to voices in his head compelling him to do so. When he did go outside, as instructed by the voices in his head, he reported that he had seen a pink spiral over the Great Lakes area, and it would turn out that others had had the same urge to go outside at the same time and seen the same thing. Aykroyd would go on to become a fairly hardcore proponent of UFOs, and he would eventually make a documentary on his interests called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs in 2005. And he he even served for several years as the official Hollywood representative of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, which we've talked about. We talked about in episode three. He has accrued a vast knowledge of UFO research and lore over the years that would put most ufologists to shame. In April of 2010, Aykroyd appeared on the well-known TV show Larry King Live, where the topic was UFOs, and Aykroyd appeared as a pro-UFO representative in the debate among a panel of scientists who had been brought together to discuss the physicist Stephen Hawking's assertion that any aliens coming from the stars would be certainly malevolent. Aykroyd shared some famous cases of UFOs. Wait a second. Did you say Stephen Hawking? Yeah, Stephen. So Stephen Hawking um, so, you know, fuck this uh, this professor that we had to debate with on yeah. the BBC over this weekend. Stephen Hawking, the smartest man like ever Alive. arguably. Yeah. He, he had gone on Larry King Live and said, I think that it is possible that aliens have visited us, but you should know that if they have visited us, I think that they have malevolent intentions. I don't think that they're here for research purposes. What? Why does he say that? Um, I didn't look super hard into yeah. that. It's well, just like a blip would, on the radar screen. I guess that but- I would assume that, I mean, I don't know about alien uh, culture, but I know that in the Earth culture, the where all the money is, it goes to the military of whatever country you live in. And those are the people who can afford, they like, they can afford to develop craft and they can afford to like, like NASA, I guess is privatized. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's like a privatized NASA type thing over there, but I would assume that anyone who's coming over here, if it is for military purposes would not be, it would right. be like, oh, like there we're going over to this land. There's this um, inferior culture and society, and they have a ton of this Let's take rare their minerals. Yeah, yeah, like we can just get rid of them. Or like that episode of South Park where Earth is just a reality TV show for the aliens, <laughs> and like they're constantly yes. poking us to start wars with each other yeah. for well, their entertainment. I feel like the aliens would take one look at us and just be like, well, we could take all of them out, but... But they're kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funnier to watch them destroy themselves. <laughs> Okay, so on this um, Larry King Live interview, Aykroyd shared some famous cases of UFO abductions, such as those of Travis Walton Uh and Betty and Barney Hill, which we haven't covered yet. And he stated, they are here. Science should accept that they are here and look how they have come from a billion years in the future or the next dimension. They have abducted people. It's indisputable. Aykroyd has appeared on other shows about his UFO beliefs, such as a 2015 episode of the HuffPost show with host Mark Lamont Hill, where he talked candidly about the U.S. Air Force's UFO alleged cover-ups and some details about his own personal UFO sightings. When asked if he truly believed in UFOs, Aykroyd answered, I do, absolutely, and I'm not alone. No, I, I believe uh, I believe that, uh, that like, like Lord, uh, you know, the Lord Hill Norton said, that there's probably many species coming and going and that the Air Force is very interested. They don't deny the existence, but they, they can't come out and Firm, say, yeah. you know, they, because but, 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 then you're going to go, you know, wait a minute, the parish priest, the cop on the beat, the president, you don't got the power. Right. <laughs> they, 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 They've got the they power. they got the power. Right up there. The one with that black shit, the triangle, the, the delta, look, it, 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 you know, I want to talk to them. And you'd have complete breakdown in society. The Brookings Institution in 1958 said as much. There was a study, in that, and uh, they said you can't, 
divulge this. You can't make that this is real. So 50% believe, 50% don't believe. I happen to be a believer because I've witnessed four really unexplained yeah. uh, crafts. So. Yeah. Huh? Well, there's some applause out yeah. there. Little, he, he agrees. Yes. Dana Aykroyd, like he, I, like this made me like him even more. I'm sure I already liked him in the first place. So, okay. Out of all of this, one of Aykroyd's more bizarre tales is an incident in which he says he was confronted by the men in black as he was talking to the singer Britney Spears wait, of all people. Wait, that's why Britney's crazy. This is like the weirdest fucking celebrity cameo. So does Britney say that this also happened? If she was there, she must have experienced it. Okay, so let me tell you. So she wasn't there. He was on the phone with her. Oh, why so, was he on the phone with Britney? Oh, I'll tell you. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd uh, is on the phone with Britney Spears. Just before the cancellation of his TV show, Out There, Aykroyd claims that he stepped out of the studio to take a call from Spears, who he had starred beside as her father in the film Crossroads. Britney Spears had called him to ask him to appear on Aykroyd's old show, Saturday Night Live, with her. And as he talked, he says he noticed a mysterious black car pull up on a nearby street. Out of the car stepped a very tall, pale man in a black suit who gave him a dirty look before getting back into the vehicle and driving off. Oddly, the producers of the show Aykroyd was filming shortly after were told to stop shooting a show that they were making about UFOs, specifically one in which they had been interviewing a Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project, who was about to spill tons of testimony of UFO witnesses and their supposed insider information. The show never made it to air. Well, what happened was we, we, we sold the show to, uh, to Sci-Fi Channel, and uh, it was called Out There, and I basically interviewed all of the people that I admired uh, in various fields of study, like uh, Colin Andrews from the Crop Circle Movement, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, the expert on cattle mutilations, John Mack. I was outside, in, before I knew it was canceled, in between the interviews, and uh, I was outside and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked, I was outside having a cigarette, the phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy, and I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat, and he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street, it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, and he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd love for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. And whether this was like a warning to me because the guy cut out of the backseat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And... Uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to. God gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure, car gone. That's what happened. And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Was that, uh, was that an MIB experience? You know, black helicopters, uh, you know, military... Uh, abductions that happen sometimes people are taken and they talk about then being visited by you know military personnel and re debriefed about their abduction was it you know was it a technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting that wanted to warn me off or that wanted to 
give me verification that I was on the right track. I don't know. But I do know I, I, did, I did turn back a second later, and I, you know, it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from zero to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street going past me, and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square, I would have seen that car. And I looked around. I mean, I was looking for that then. It was gone. So basically what Dan Aykroyd is saying is that he was shooting the show about aliens mm -hmm. and UFO encounters. He was interviewing this like really top um, in the know guy and he was going to spill the beans on all of these um, UFO abductions and sightings. And he's taking a call, an unrelated call with Britney Spears when this man in black appears, looks out the window, stares at him and is annoyed, gives him a dirty look, opens the car door gets out, looks at him, just stare. Imagine how fucking terrifying that would be. Yeah. It's completely dark, pitch black. This man comes out of an alley in a black a Super Buick. tall, pale yeah, man. pale, all black suit, black hat, black sunglasses at fucking night. And oh. he's just standing there staring at you and he's pale as fuck. I would run the fuck away immediately. Yeah, I wonder if he was mad that he was on the phone with Britney Spears. Maybe. He's like, hey, she's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk to her. Okay, so at 10.30 p.m. on October 14th, 2008, this is the last one. A hotel manager named Shane Savar saw something strange when he stepped outside the Sheraton Hotel on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls and saw a huge black triangle swooping over the water. Shane described the triangle as having three flashing lights and measuring about 240 feet in length. As suddenly as it appeared, it was gone. Shane immediately told other hospital staff what had happened, and when he got home after his shift, he also informed friends and family. On May 15, 2009, seven months after Shane witnessed his, this event, two men dressed in black suits walked into the hotel lobby and asked for Shane. When staff informed the men that Shane was not working that day, the men began aggressively questioning hotel staff about the UFO that Shane had seen. Staff was scared and told the men that they didn't have much info on the incident. The men in black then left. When Shane returned to work the following day, he was allegedly approached by one of his bellboys, who seemed to be rather unsettled about something and wanted to talk in private. He then claimed that two mysterious men dressed in black suits and trench coats had approached him, and he told the manager, Something really weird happened here yesterday and when you weren't here. There were a couple of guys looking for you. Well, this is really hard for me to say, but there were a couple of really strange looking men that were here and they kind of freaked everybody out and they were asking questions about you. And I said, I'm sorry, he's not actually working today. The bizarre strangers were described as being very tall, exactly the same height, with very pale skin and generally looking odd. It was also noted that they appeared to have the same face as if they were twins or a copy of each other. The bellman claimed that the two strangers had not seemed to really believe that the manager wasn't in at the time and proceeded to look around the premises and question other employees with one other hotel staff member who was approached saying of them, they asked some questions about you and they said some strange things that I didn't understand. And they were talking about governments and conspiracies and none of it made any sense, but they were very, very scary. They had no facial hair, none, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. Their hair looked like it was actually a wig, like it was attached to their hats, like it wasn't even real. And the scariest thing, their eyes were so big and so blue that they almost hypnotized me a little bit. These men, they didn't blink. Not once did I ever see them blink. Another hotel staff member who spoke with the two men told Shane that she felt like they were reading her mind as she spoke to them. One of my bellmen approached me and he said, and he kind of had a weird look on his face and he said to me, can we go in your office and talk? And I said, sure, 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 no problem. So I brought him into my office and he says, uh, something really weird happened here yesterday and, and uh, you weren't here. He said, uh, 
there's a couple of really strange looking men that were here and they kind of freaked everybody out and they were asking questions about you and of course now I'm getting a little bit nervous and I'm like what are you talking about and he said well they were he goes I don't know how to describe them except for extremely odd looking they were really really tall like six foot five at least he said and they were identical height they were the exact same height they were wearing the exact same clothes and they had the exact same faces like they were twins and he said they were wearing black suits black trench coats they were wearing like the old-fashioned uh federal hats they had extremely extremely pale skin and he said they came in and they looked around a little bit and they asked for you and i said i'm sorry he's actually not working today and it seemed like they didn't believe me so they started to walk around the hotel and shortly after they went to the tour desk and he goes i got busy i started to have to bring cars around and get luggage and by the time i came back they were gone but he goes they freaked me out and i really wanted to tell you that there were these weird guys in here looking for you shane was a bit disturbed to hear all of this but didn't necessarily believe his co-workers he claims that he then went through the security footage to check it out and found exactly what had been described, with two men dressed in black entering the hotel through the front doors, and I have the video footage. <gasps> oh my god, thank you. So let me get that for you, because it is fucking terrifying. Okay. Video footage. Uh-huh. He released the footage, the security footage. Thank God. I'm, I know. I'm like Thanks, so sick honestly, of people just saying stuff. I know, I'm so tired of it too. Unless you have physical evidence, just don't even bother don't telling people my your time. story. Okay, here we go. What? So do you want to describe Hold to our on. listeners what you're seeing right now? Wait a second. Okay, so we're looking at what looks like the store, a storefront or something. It's uh, the Sheraton Hotel. The Sheraton Hotel. And it's like automatic doors that you stand in front of and they open. And here comes two men walking in. They are wearing black, long trench coats. They look to be the exact same height and exact same weight. And they're huge, right? Like They're look- huge compared to the other people that are walking in. Super tall. They're just huge. Like they're boxy. They're huge, boxy, tall. They're wearing, yeah. Oh my God, that's so crazy. So they've got so like... They're, they walk right by like a regular person who's not a man in black. And that person <laughs> is so much smaller than them. Right? Like they dwarf everybody. That is creepy. So, and the people who saw them described them as looking like twins. And here, I mean, the footage, of course, it's surveillance footage. So it's not like super sharp and detailed, but you can tell they look like they're the same height and they look super long. Yeah. Like it's crazy. Long and tall. Right. Okay. So even more recent is a case of supposed photographic evidence of the men in black that came out in 2014, according to a UFO grid report. In the report, two witnesses came forward to tell their tale of being harassed by the men in black in New Orleans. Louisiana. One of the witnesses was identified by the alias Jack Smith, now in his 50s, who claims that he had been relentlessly stalked by a pair of the mysterious entities wearing identical black suits his whole life, which he surmised was due to his encounters he had with the gray aliens back in his youth. He says that ever since he had been menaced by the men in black for decades, saying, They have let me know that I could be found wherever I was. What was said to me was threatening, and they could have caused me to live in fear a lot of the time. I know the truth. My good close friends know the truth as well. On April 13th, 2014, he claims that he and a friend were followed by the mysterious strangers, and that this time he managed to capture them on video staring directly at them. 
The day had started with Jack and his friend Jane, which is like, these sound like not real names, with Jack and his friend Jane going out for some sightseeing and lunch, and they found themselves waiting for a streetcar at the French Quarter Bienville Street Station near Jackson Square. It was here where they would notice two weird-looking men dressed in stuffy black suits despite the hot weather at the time, standing there milling about the station. And Jane would say of their behavior, I knew something was wrong immediately. They looked like identical twins. Mm. They were slim and much taller than the average person. They were dressed in identical black suits, white shirts, skinny black ties, black fedoras, and black sunglasses. They just looked so odd and out of place. They were pale, stiff, and they moved eerily in unison. They had oblong faces with a thin line for a mouth. Their whole vibe was cold and creepy. They were calm, but like how a reptile can appear calm. Twin lizards in suits. They leaned in simultaneously simultaneously to communicate with each other their mouths opened slightly but they were not talking the two men apparently waited there and repeatedly stared at jack and jane the entire time but when the streetcar finally arrived after a 20 minute wait the two men reportedly turned away and walked over to the shiny black car with a foreign license plate the two then simply got into the vehicle and drove away jack had captured some of the encounter on his cell phone <gasps> yeah and he would later jack. relate to jane what he thought they were and although she was taken aback she had indeed seen it all herself so there was no denying that these were not ordinary people eerily jack later sent her the video footage he had taken but jane's phone inexplicably deleted it as well as all of the data on her sd card which was wiped completely clean she took her cell phone to her cell phone carrier but they were unable to explain what had happened it was like her phone had been fried The mysterious video also supposedly deleted itself off of another friend's phone when Jack attempted to send it out. Jack would finally send it to UFO Grid, telling them, The thought of giving the video to anybody scares the hell out of me, because when I tried to share it before, bad things happened. The thought of what could possibly happen to me if I did release this, I honestly do fear for my life. This experience has been awful. I can't even begin to explain to you how awful it is. The very thought of stirring things up scares the heck out of me. I hope it can help someone that is struggling in silence because of men in black harassment. Whatever or whoever uses these men in black to keep us in fear to control us is despicable. So something super interesting. So he sent this video to a couple of friends. Both of those friends had their phones fried. His phone then became fried, but not before he sent the video footage to this um, UFO organization. Right. The UFO organization claims they have the video, but they're afraid to release it because of repercussions. So all I have is a still image from the video to show you, but it is creepy. What? So I'm looking at, <laughs> I am looking at what looks like a bus station, like a metro type thing, um, and two men in black. So this is Louisiana. They're waiting for the streetcar to come pick them up. This is Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Okay, so nobody dresses like this no, in Louisiana. No, nobody. Especially, it's. It, they said it was over a hundred degrees that day. Nobody dresses like and this in humidity, Louisiana. And the humidity? Are you kidding? Yeah, and it looks like one of them's looking towards the camera, um, and and. In this particular case, these, yeah, yeah. One of the, they, this one looks like really skinny and tall. This is so weird. Right. And it's interesting how all of these accounts, there's a lot of similarities, right? And it's not like these people know each other. So I want to ask you, do you think that the men in black, after listening to all these stories, do you think that the men in black are aliens or do you think that they are government agents or do you think the aliens and the government have teamed up to form this? Or what do you think about this? So I I think that based on the evidence that you're giving me, it sounds like these are aliens because the U.S. military is 
first of all, smart enough to not behave this way. Like, I feel like if it was U.S. military, they wouldn't get caught. And then, right. yeah, they wouldn't be this They'd be smarter about it. They wouldn't be wearing these crazy black suits with weird clown makeup on right. in the middle of the day. They wouldn't be driving around in like a 1967 Cadillac. Right. They just wouldn't do it. I agree. Um, and I, But I also, here's another weird theory, is that what if it is U.S. military and they're kind of like behaving weird and doing all this strange stuff to make the people who have seen these stories or heard these stories sound crazy? Well, and that's so exactly. So we talked about the very first story I told you, the very first quote unquote UFO sighting from that guy in 1947, Kenneth. I mean, a lot of people say that he was discredited by the government, that they paid newspaper agencies to write these negative articles about him. And he didn't even use the word alien. Mm -hmm. He didn't use the word UFO. He described it as a flying saucer because that's the language he had to describe what it looked like. The only thing that I could think of from like a semi-skeptic point of view is if this actually isn't uh, alien craft these people are seeing, if this is military craft that these people are seeing. Like top secret. Top secret, whatever it is. Then I don't understand why send these men in black who are kind of horrible at doing their job it seems like because they they are super well remembered they stick out a ton and they're acting really weird why send those people right i don't know and if it is that they don't want their if it is just a regular person and not an alien that's wearing a disguise that doesn't want to be seen that doesn't want to be discovered why do that? Or maybe they do want to be discovered because it's an intimidation tactic. Uh, it's like, it's so strange that it's jarring. Like imagine right. some guy walking up to you at night with no eyebrows, no eyelashes, porcelain white skin, red lipstick, no. red, like I black won't. trench coat, no. black shoes, black no, I'm, tie, I'm running black away. Sunglasses. It's not happening. It, well, he cannot approach. He cannot approach he me. I will, will mace him get. in the face. And imagine that this person is like not blinking at all as they're talking to I'm you. I'm just imagining me walking home from work and there's a guy on one of those like uber scooters like a lime scooter that's dressed like this that's like chasing after me and i'm just sprinting as fast as i can to get away from him with like me and my dog we're just both like fuck this yeah exactly i don't like it's fucking freaky whether it's an alien or a robot or three aliens on top of each other in a skin suit or if it's actually like a cia operative or a military operative a government representative like no matter what it is this costume that they're wearing like this very it's like very obviously a uniform. Okay, so I have a little tidbit that I don't know if I've told you or not. That because no. mm-hmm. there was just so much going on this weekend that I did. There was a lot of things that I just didn't have time to tell you. So the hotel that we were staying at in Tonopah, the Comfort Inn, uh-huh. uh, one of the nights after you and Amy had gone to sleep, I couldn't sleep, so I was just kind of up and I was hanging out in the lobby, and there was nothing going on. But there was these two guys that were working there. They're young. They're probably like in their early twenties, and um, on the the welcome desk or whatever there was a flyer like a little like handout sheet that said oh if you know someone who's just like uh, being a terrorist tell the fbi and it had all these bullet points oh yeah i saw right that. yeah so it had these bullet points that were like if someone is secluding themselves from friends and family and engaging in um like online activity that's violent or if someone uh, starts talking about extremist ideas or someone starts doing this or this or this call the FBI. So I see this little flyer thing and I kind of ask these guys about it and I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this could be me, you know, like with my (laughs) podcast. What do you, of course, I'm like not talking to friends or family, like hold up in a little room, like researching aliens, right? Or editing a video. 
And so they're like, you know what's crazy is that the other day we got a phone call from some random number and the guy was like, hey, is it okay if I bring 25 rifles to stay w- to stay with what? me in my hotel room? And I was like, uh, and they're obviously like, no, that's not okay. And I'm like, why Why tell them? Why not just show Keep up? Keep it in the car. Or Keep something. it in the car. Put it in a bag. Like, why do you have to get permission? That's so weird. And then he's like, and then a couple hours, uh, a couple hours later, we get a call from the FBI that's like, hey, have you guys had any suspicious activity? What the fuck? Um, make sure to tell us. And the guy's like, well, actually, someone called earlier and said, asked if they could bring 25 rifles. And they're like, okay. So then. Was it a test? Well, then it gets even weirder. A guy walks into the Comfort Inn wearing a Hawaiian shirt that's been unbuttoned with a white wife beater underneath and tan cargo shorts, like the fucking Big Lebowski. <laughs> right. And and people do not dress like this in Tanapah. No, not at all. Yeah. And the guy comes in and he's like, hey, are you the person I spoke to with on the phone? I'd like to talk to you. Um, and he literally pulled his like ba- his like shirt to the side to show his badge because the guy was like, are you actually FBI? You're dressed like a buffoon. Yeah. You know? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm really the FBI. And you're dressed like it. Jimmy Buffett like yeah <laughs> I'm not giving you any information and and so I don't know this to me just kind of is uh, like it shows it, that it that, shows that stuff like this does happen right like people come dressed really fucking weird and they are legitimate people right right yeah and so like I almost in costume right exactly so I'm just kind of thinking but the fact that there's so many count like there's so many instances that people have said of the whoever these men in black are dressed exactly the same showing up it's just kind of it's so weird to me it's like why if you're a military personnel um why not why not dress more like up to date you know right i don't know i know it's super bizarre um and so the only thing i can think of like you said so if if we think it's aliens then this is just like we said maybe a like a costume that they think is normal to wear like they saw a magazine or they put together some they did a google search of charlie chaplin and they were like just kill them then kill who the person who saw like if they really are these aliens or whatever and right. you really want to take someone yeah, out you question. don't show up at l- looking weird as fuck and being memorable as well, fuck and being like hey don't say I, anything about this i think that it's more of an intimidation thing okay. than anything i think it's meant to jar someone because you, who the fuck has ever seen someone with clown lips and no hair in a black <laughs> trench coat like i think that i would be so startled if i saw that and if, and if that person told me it's almost like you're seeing someone who's fucking crazy right yeah. if somebody who doesn't look crazy who doesn't act crazy is like hey i don't think you should talk about that i'm gonna be like fuck you i'm gonna talk about it on my podcast right but if someone looking like an insane clown creature yeah. is like oh like, you're like i never want to see you know, again like, so i'll do whatever exactly, you say exactly <laughs> and so the story i told you that was so terrifying <laughs> know, to me so terrifying um but the story i told you about the guy at the sheraton hotel mm-hmm. i found him on linkedin really and, and I, you talked to him so i sent him a message on linkedin God. but he hasn't responded yet so if i do get a hold of him i'll i'll drop that Alyssa, in a future episode Alyssa has lately gotten into this habit of like facebook messaging like <laughs> witnesses and cases and i'm telling you you're gonna get murdered i know but it's just like i want to know because the sheraton one is so recent that right. i'm like Wait, tell when me did the everything sheraton happened? the sheraton one happened in 2009 and that's the one that i showed you the video the footage mm-hmm. of the two guys walking through the sliding doors yeah, and they're yeah, like yeah. tall as fuck and yeah. boxed 
Roxy and like so I want to know like that guy's still fucking alive I found him he has a LinkedIn it shows that he still works at the Sheraton mm-hmm. I'm like I want to know like was this article blown up or taken out also of it's been context? 10 years man yeah. maybe like Tell us, do you own the Sheraton now I know <laughs> probably they were like we don't want him to file like a workers comp stress claim for like <laughs> being threatened by aliens I'm I I just what do you think it is I think I I like to believe I think that this is not aliens. This is some like division, super top secret division of like the Secret Service or the yeah. CIA that are intentionally dressing up like fucking wackos to yeah. let, to scare people into not talking about stuff or to make or to discredit people like we were right. talking about. Because if you tell someone that you saw a robot porcelain man, they're going to be like, well, you're fucking insane. You right. have schizophrenia. You're seeing things. Well, yeah, maybe it's maybe there. if it is like a military personnel, they're wearing um they're wearing a mask or something yeah, like that like a rubber mask and, yeah and because when you hear all these accounts told back they sound so outlandish but ev- all like everybody has the same story with the same characteristics so there has to be some validity to it and if it's the same people then they don't want anyone to be able to tell what they look like because they're going to describe you they're going to be like well it was a middle-aged white man with you know furry eyebrows and a handlebar mustache or right. something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but instead it's like it was a porcelain robot man with clown lips yeah i don't know i just think it, the the description is so bizarre but so consistent across all the board that it sounds like this is some weird uniform well, and if they are wearing these trench coats and all that, it could be to hide wires. It could be to mm-hmm. hide camera. It could be to hide whatever it is that they're bringing in there. Totally. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's what I think. I'm really interested to hear what you guys think, though, in the SoundCloud comments. If you want to drop a comment or DM us on Instagram or tweet at us, because I don't know, like it could be it could totally be aliens. It could be nothing it could be a coincidence it could be people just like fucking with you yeah like people dressed up this way because they know it's a thing but i don't know it could be a men in black division of the cia i have to know what this guy from the sheridan says if he talks to me i'll drop that info either in this episode or next episode if he doesn't talk to me then whatever would you ask him um i just said hey man Look, it's it's it works. That's all I know is when I contact these witnesses, they respond. What does your LinkedIn say? Is it is it that picture of you holding a basket of bread and the American flag? <laughs> the wholesome yeah, photo. Is it, it that one? No, it's me at a winery, but it's zoomed in so you can't tell where I am. And I just look like super wholesome, like holding this wine glass, but the wine glass is cut out. And I'm like, hey, like, oh, oh my okay. God. So you just I'm look just like a sorority like girl. Yeah. yeah. And people respond to me when <laughs> I course. ask them. So so I just was like, hey, man, like I read this article and I see that like this is like an uncommon name and it says that you still work there so i was just wondering if you want if you could confirm the validity of this article and i linked it to him and i was like and if you would be interested in talking to me some more about the men in black well obviously he's not going to talk to you then if he's been scared by these men in black people right unless he's like uh he wants to be like hey if something happens to me it was the men in black I don't know. I feel like that's what I would do in that situation. If I felt like I was being threatened, I would want to tell as many people as possible. He's like that guy th- that sent the video to his right. friends and their phones got fried. Yeah. He was just covering his bases. Mm. Well, I would think it was like a test. Like this guy that from the Comfort Inn where the guy, people call and they're like, hey, can we bring 25 rifles there? Like it was obviously the oh, FBI yeah. testing to see if those guys were. If they were like, yeah, sure. Bring the 25 rifles. Yeah. No problem. Um. Uh, maybe this guy thinks that you're like a decoy. He's like, um, some random hot girl on LinkedIn like asked if I would talk about some this. random HR representative <laughs> said that she wants to know about. Yeah. So she wants to know about the men in black. Like this is clearly a cover up. I don't know, oh, Alyssa. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, BRB got to go. 
Gotta go. Paint my clown makeup on. I don't no, know. No, I don't know how we're going to tie BRB this gotta on. gotta go call Britney Spears. Oh, wait a second. If you think that the men in black are about to get you, it looks like the only antidote is to be on the phone with Britney Spears. Yes, because then they leave you alone. Yeah, they're like, okay, that... <laughs> Britney is that, one of them. No, Britney is like the leader of another different <laughs> faction. They're like, we don't fuck with Britney Spears. That's why he was so upset. He looks at him against the guy and he's like, oh, he's talking to the leader of the base that has more... Britney's ha- indestructible. She went through 2007, 2008 and emerged like a butterfly out of her co- crazy ass <laughs> cocoon. <laughs> <gasps> BRB gotta go call Britney Spears protect myself from the men in black bye bye Thanks for listening to episode 19 of Let's Get Haunted. This week's episode features several articles from a variety of websites. Our sources are as follows. Wikipedia, History.com, WeirdUS.com, TheTheory.Tripod.com, MysteriousUniverse.org, UFOEvidence.org, AllTimeConspiracies.com, and BuzzFeed Unsolved. Additionally, we'd like to make clear that no animals were harmed in the making of our vlog. Thanks for listening. See you next week.